Welcome to Big Questions. This is Gal Fussman with the first podcast of the new year. I see 2020 as a year of clarity. My resolution is to take what I learned last year, look at it more clearly, and improve on it. I did something that you might find intriguing to do for yourself. Might even allow you to see yourself from an unexpected perspective. I thought I'd revisit seven moments from the last year that taught me something, just to see where the exercise would take me. Some of the moments came from this podcast, others came from outside the podcast, but were traceable to what I'd learned through Big Questions. When I followed what I'd learned from each of these moments back to the source, I was really surprised by the pattern, but it made me smile because I could see it like a current taking me a new place. So I got a couple of hoops riding on this episode. The first is that some of these moments will make you think about how you'd like to approach your life in the new year. Second is that you'll stop and think about three or five lessons that you learned in the last year, write them down, look them over, and see if there are any patterns that might push you to someplace new. You'll see where mine took me by the end of the podcast. This first clip is about asking questions. I make a living asking questions. A lot of people ask me for advice on asking questions, but I realized in this segment of an interview with my friend Tom Junode about the film, It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, that you should look for weaknesses in what you're best at. You might not ordinarily do so. I haven't gone into a new year thinking about making my questions better, for a long time, but I will this year, and it's because of the moment that follows. Here's the setup. Tom is a writer for Esquire magazine in the film about Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers, as everybody knows at this point, is played by Tom Hanks. Tom Juneau's character goes by a different name in the movie, Lloyd Vogel. The movie is about how Mr. Rogers helped Lloyd get through a troubled relationship with his father. In real life, about 20 years ago, Mr. Rogers did help Tom Juneau go through a very difficult time. It wasn't about his father, though. It was about something else. Something I was very aware of. But at the time, my questions didn't go deep enough for me to fully support Tom. Only 20 years later, on this podcast, did my questions go to that place. What happened is this. Tom and I were writing for GQ magazine in the 90s for the editor David Granger. When David took the top job at Esquire in 1997, he brought us and a few other writers over to Esquire with him. All this set the stage for a civil war between the two preeminent men's magazines in America. When Tom stepped up to write his first cover story for Esquire, everybody who read men's magazines was watching. He set off to do a profile about the actor Kevin Spacey, and you'll hear what happens in our conversation. And this is the first story for Esquire, yeah, so it's, it's got to be big and get attention. And, get, and, and, make, a, and make a splash. Make a splash, yeah. And um, so I went out to interview Kevin Spacey, and you know, the, immediately people started asking, well, what are you going to do about it, it being 
the the widespread suspicion or knowledge that Kevin was gay. I mean, virtually everybody I talked to was like, well, what are you going to do about this? And finally, I, I, you know, I decided to sort of do a, some rhetorical flourishes and sleight of hand. But I mean, we, we sort of, well, more than no, sort you, of. You, no, you, we outed him. You we outed him. Out, we we yeah, out, you did. We outed him. Yeah. You know, and I'll, I'll never forget, I was, my parents had come down to visit us in Georgia. I was looking at the New York Times and I was reading, I was just talking to my parents, I was reading through it backwards, and I, I looked at the business section. And about, like, on page three, there was this thing, Esquire and Hollywood in privacy dispute. <laughs> <laughs> and look, I was like, wow, I, I work for Esquire now. I'll, I'll, I'll read this. this. What's this about? <laughs> and it's about, it's about Kevin Spacey's uh, agency calling for a boycott against uh, Esquire and particularly me. Um, for writing for writing the story and for invading his and violating you know his privacy, and all of a sudden you know I I, I had been you know sort of a I had mean, won two national magazines award I had every expectation of con, you know continuing along the line and I remember when uh, the young woman came in from Access Hollywood to interview me in Granger's office and she sat down and I knew immediately I was like. Oh my God, she hates me, <laughs> and she is she's here. Coming she, for me. And she's coming for me, and it was um, it was a it was an education, you know, it really was. And and I th- and I think that the thing that really really bugged me about it is, uh, you know, because I didn't write it, I didn't write it out of a out of a great place. I wrote it to make a splash. I, I, wrote, I, always, I wrote it. I, I wrote always it to knew, be, man, you're, yeah. you. We're in the position where you were coming up to bat for the first time. Right. Everybody in the stadium was, right. was watching, yeah. and you felt I got to hit a home run. Well, I, 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 I got I got to hit a home run. I got to take I I got to take a huge swing here, you know. And I did. And I mean, when I was writing about stuff for for GQ, I mean, I was really writing it to to say the unsayable, and and here it was to say the unsayable in order to get attention and in order to be, and there's, and there's, there's a real difference. And I, and, and, yeah, exactly. and I really believe I, you know, I've really come to believe, I, I, I think that you can tell nearly absolute truths as journal, as a journalist, if you're motivated properly, if, if the, if the story lives up to that responsibility of telling the truth and knows the responsibility of telling the truth. And here it was just like, I'm an Esquire. I'm cool. I really want to make a splash and I'm going to do this. You know, and the reaction was just was just terrible. Was and and God, I mean, I can I can remember it. I can remember it like it was yesterday. It really was. And I mean, I I, I plummeted after that. There was a a year um, in which um, you know my my writing it felt like it was done. I felt like I was done. I, I remember I remember having a conversation with Janet, and we were it was Janet a, being your wife. Janet being my wife. And we, there was a night of storms and the, the electricity had gone out. And rainy night it was in a Georgia. Rainy night in Georgia. <laughs> and we went into, into the, the room that I used as my office. And I was with Janet. And I said, you know, if, if all this goes away and I can't do this anymore, are you, are you still with me? Well, I never yeah, knew that. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it was, it was that, was that bad. It was that bad. I was very friendly with Tom, and I knew he wasn't doing well after that Spacey story. I spoke with him, but I didn't question deeply enough. I had no idea how hurt he was. Maybe 
If I'd gone deeper, I could have given him more support. It was Mr. Rogers who intuited Tom's pain. When many other celebrities refused to be interviewed by Tom, it was Mr. Rogers who consented. The profile Tom did about Mr. Rogers ended up on the cover, the two became friends, and Mr. Rogers helped pull Tom through a dark period. Mr. Rogers sensed what I should have, and I'm going to try to go a little deeper with my questions this year when I believe that they can help. I hope that you'll make your questions a little better going forward and that they'll take you to just the right places. Next moment is a brief one. Comes from a best-selling author, Amy Morin. Amy is a therapist and the author of a string of books that come out of her original, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. This is her early epiphany. Because I'd see some people who had who they'd come in and they had gone through horrible things in their life, and yet they were still happy, optimistic people. And they might be struggling with depression or anxiety, but they had hope that life could be good again. And I'd see other people who maybe had a hangnail and they thought their life was over and they'd sort of thrown in the towel and they were ready to give up. They were angry. They were bitter. So I really wanted to know what's the difference between the people that go through struggles and come out stronger versus the people that have these sort of struggles and then they can't move forward. I'm going to replay this clip in my mind every time obstacles are thrown in my way. There's just no time worth stopping to complain when you can use the same time to move forward. I wish I was fully conscious of this many, many years ago. I wish I had learned it at six years old. I love this next clip. It's with Simon Sinek, the author of It Starts With Why, and most recently, The Infinite Game. The reason I love this clip is because I never heard anything quite like it. It's simply about the way Simon writes his books. It just delights me to hear it again. Every book I wrote, what made me most productive was completely different for each one. I tried to apply whatever worked the f- for the previous book for the next book, and it didn't work. Oh, man. So, so I don't even have That's a formula. torture. Oh, you have no idea. Yeah, the first book I wrote on planes. I re- so I remember when I got the book deal, I was like, okay, I have to scale back my schedule because I have to sit at home and write this damn book. And I would sit there, and I would get nothing done. And I was like, okay, this is, okay I'll try again tomorrow and get nothing done. And then I'd have to go on a business trip, and I'd take my computer with me, and I'd write the whole way. And I'd be like, ah, oh. because because this is this is before they had good internet on the planes as well. So basically, and and I think it was even before they used to have plugs at every seat either. So I'd have a computer with a fully charged battery, and basically I would just write until the battery ran out, and I couldn't email anybody, and I couldn't text anybody, and I couldn't surf the internet. No distractions. So I just wrote. And so when I realized this, I started booking flights to nowhere. So I called, <laughs> oh, no. I called, I called Delta Airlines. I no, I did this. I called Delta Airlines. I'm like, all right. And I was really honest with the agent. She was wonderful. It was many of them. I'm like, all right, here's the deal. I just need to be in the air for at least three hours, three, three and a half hours. I don't care where I go. Uh, I want a cheap ticket and a, and a light load on the aircraft so that there's a high probability that the status will get me a free upgrade. And so we sat down and we found a bunch of flights. The agent was amazing. She helped me find a bunch of flights. So I flew to Orlando and back. 
And I got, I showed up at the airport with my computer under my arm, nothing else. You would go to Orlando. Yeah, I flew to Orlando, got off the get, plane. Get off the plane. Have a cup of coffee, get back on and fly back to New York. I flew to Arizona and back. The best one was. This is one of the great writing This is the best, the, be, the best one. The best one is I flew to LA and back in one day. I got on the plane at like 10 or 11, flew to LA, wrote the entire way, wrote like 2,500 words, got off, had a slice of pizza or a whole pizza, California pizza kitchen at the airport terminal, got back on the plane with the same crew and flew home. And I was home by 10 or 11 o'clock at night and went to bed. I went to LA and I, I got all my best writing done on planes. Yeah. So, so I would, I would book these flights to nowhere for, for the, for start with why. So for Leaders Elast, Now you like, got to be thinking, okay, I know the drill. Right, exactly. So second book comes around. I'm like, I know exactly what to do here. <laughs> so I booked my flight. I did the same thing. Booked myself a cheap flight. You know, it's like 200 bucks or something. You know, light loads, all the same rules. I'm literally sitting in the taxi, driving to JFK airport. And I'm thinking to myself, I can't do this. I can't do this. Because what I've neglected was that, that my life had changed from when I first wrote Start With Why, I lived on planes after that. Like I was traveling so much that the thought of getting on another plane was like- Oh, it was sapping your energy. It was like, it was like I, wanted to, I wanted to kill myself. And I remember I was, was getting ready to write this new book and I booked my flight and I was driving to JFK and I, I was dreading it. And I said to the taxi driver, turn around. I never made it to the airport. Oh, yeah. man. Never made it to the air, turned right around and came back home. So now, so now what happens? So now what happens? Now you need a whole new strategy. A whole new strategy. So I know that I like working with people. So um, what I did was I basically hired a babysitter where um, someone would come to my house and just keep me company. I didn't care what they did. They could surf the internet. They could do whatever they wanted. And every now and then they would look up and say, are you writing? I'd be like, yes, I'm writing. Like just having somebody there made me accountable because because I can't just like stand in front of the fridge for an hour, which I could do. And I couldn't just like sit and watch movies oh, because, you're the because, because I'm supposed to be writing. And if somebody's like, why are you watching TV? You're supposed to be writing. Like I'm accountable. It's like, it's, it's no different than having a gym buddy. You're like, you know, we're good at disappointing ourselves, but we don't like disappointing other people. Right. I, I can wake up at six o'clock in the morning, all revved up to go to the gym by myself and just change my mind. <laughs> and I'll just sit in bed till, you know, Noon, (laughs) you know, I'm really, really good at letting myself down guilt-free. I feel nothing. No one comes. I'm good. I'm like, and I'll say to myself, "Ah, I didn't go to the gym. Right now, if somebody says to me, (laughs) I will meet you at the gym at 730, I'll be there at 730 because I can let myself down, but I will not let them down. Right? It's no different. We all, we all do things where we have accountability buddies or we tell somebody thing out, you know, we say things out loud of what our goals or ambitions are so that we're held accountable. Like this is not a new idea. I just did it for my work ethic because I, I have a shitty work ethic. So now you're bringing in baby, same babysitter or different l- babysitter? Mostly the same person. And now, how do you call up some, somebody to offer them a job to basically babysit a book? So I, a friend of mine is a choreographer. And I said, uh, do you have any, know any dancers or creative people who have what they call survival jobs, which is their waiters and their waitresses and their hosts and hostesses because they just need to make money so they can do their art, right? I said, give me somebody who's got a good, strong personality who won't put up with my shit. 
and and just let me let me talk to them. And basically, I found this wonderful. Uh, uh, she happened to be a modern dancer. I asked her what she does. She works as a front desk person in a gym or something. I asked her, how much do they pay you? She told me. I said, I'll pay the exact same thing so that you'll turn down their shifts and take mine, right? So you're not going to lose money. So she said, sounds good. And so she, she could surf the internet and look for auditions or read a book. I didn't mind. And it was great because she would also like help me out. And, um, I would, I loved reading stuff to her and she would give me comments and I really liked the backwards and forwards. It was, re- I, it, it was actually, you know, I, I call it babysitter cause it's funny, but it really was, um, it was really a, a creative partner. It was, I, I, I would read her, I would write a paragraph and read it to her I'd write an idea. And, and she would say, no, that doesn't make sense. And she was great. She was wonderful. What did it feel like for her when you finished? Because she's part of this process. Um, I, I, I mean, she has to have felt some ownership, I guess. I, I mean, there must have been some pride. I mean, we became friends. I mean, there was, there was real That's beautiful. There was real joy that for both of us. And I was really supportive of her career. And it was great to hear when she got an audition. And, you know, I was flexible and she was flexible. Can you come in on Thursday? No, but how about Friday? You know, we would, it wasn't like you have to be here every day. It was really, it was really, I worked with her schedule and she worked with mine. So I didn't work with her every day. I worked with her probably once or twice a week when she could come in, right? So by the time in, going, Infinite Game comes around, so I'm now. like, all right, I need a, I need a babysitter. So I <laughs> oh, no, didn't work. It didn't work. It didn't work. It didn't work. Why? I don't know. I wish I knew. It didn't work. Did you, you got the babysitter? I had somebody. I had a friend who volunteered. It didn't work. And how long did it take you to figure out that Pretty this quick. is not... Just like with the plane. It's like I'm on the way to the air, you know, the plane. I turn around. I'm like, this is not going to work. But at least this time you knew, okay, I pivoted and I figured it out. Yeah. All I got to do is pivot. Yeah. So how'd you do this one? Boy, you're really pulling the curtain back here, aren't you? (laughs) No, this is fascinating They warned warned me about you. No. (laughs) (laughs) I'm fascinated They said to me, you do realize if you go on his show, they said, you won't be talking about your work. You're going to be talking about you. I'm like, oh, yeah, sure, whatever. I can redirect. <laughs> Not working. I, you, you're leaving me like I'm at the edge of a cliff now because how did you get the third one, the, the, the third of the, the so, trio here done? So the, so the infinite game process, the writing process there was more one of uh, uh, frustration, which was I was working at home. And my dining room table was piled up with 15, 20, 30 books, you know, research, papers everywhere. And like, if somebody wanted to come over, like if I wanted to have somebody come over for dinner, I'd have to like take all of this book, all these books and all this research and like pile it up on the floor. So then I'd have piles of books on the floor up against the wall. And then they, you know, I'd have a nice dinner with someone and then, and I would sit on the couch and work sometimes. And I, I realized what was happening is my, I could no longer tell the difference between my personal life and my professional life, where the couch that I sat on to relax and watch TV was the couch that I sat on to be stressed out and be working. And I would look over at my dinner table, because remember, I live in New York City. It's just, you can just see your dinner table. It's right over there, you know? (laughs) Uh, I would look at my dinner table, the table that I could sit at to have breakfast, but I couldn't because it was just, it was a computer on it. And and I realized this this is no way to live. I've turned my home into an office. And so... I got an office <laughs> and moved all the books in my computer to the office. And, and how did that uh, feel? Did it liberate you? Yeah, and- yeah. So then, so for the first time in my life, wow. 
you know, I would work at random hours at US, you know, is at two o'clock in the morning. It used to be random hours. And once I got the office, it was really, I treated it like a job. I go to the office in the morning, I work on the book all day. And then when I'm tired and when I'm done, I leave the office and then I come home and I don't work anymore. This last book, I treated it like a job. Uh, and it was great. Simon made me think about where I work. Is there a change I can make to get more out of myself? I know I can make my plane rides more efficient. I fly all the time to give keynotes. I've already started to reconfigure my office to see if I can bring more out of myself. You never know where driving things to be fresh can take you. Next clip can be traced to an email I just got the other day. It was from a woman I met when I was speaking at the podcast movement convention. She was unhappy with her job, but it had good health benefits. And that was important because her husband has diabetes. She felt boxed in and she was hesitant to move, but her soul was screaming for her to do so. I gave her advice that came to me from a woman who I just had on the podcast. Amanda Slavin. Amanda is the co-founder of Catalyst Creative and the author of The Seventh Level. She's a preeminent marketer, but Amanda also helps people see who they are at essence. She showed me not to identify myself not by a job, but by what I do well. For example, for years when someone asked me what I do, I used to say, I'm a writer for Esquire magazine. I would never say, I ask questions and use the answers to tell stories. But when you think like that, you can free yourself to find work in many places. By seeing who you are through what you're best at, you open yourself up to a lot more possibilities in life. And four months after I met that woman at the podcast movement, she emailed to thank me. She had a new job in a completely different field with amazing health benefits for her family. Plus, she had the time to start blueprinting an entrepreneurial idea she'd been dreaming about. Amanda's advice can really lift the way you see yourself, and I'm resolving to pass that message on to as many people as I can. Here's that clip from my podcast with Amanda. All these amazing people come. It's this life-changing experience for them. And I call it like a seventh level experience, which I can talk about later. But it was this visceral experience that changed their entire lives, changed every part of their being. They found the essence of who they were and they start sharing that on social media. And one of the attendees was a friend, Dan Fredenberg, who um, ended up passing away later from climbing Mount Everest. Oh, um, man. And he was dealing with a divorce um, and he was in so much pain. And he wrote me a letter after that that said the event totally transformed his life. He called himself a robot because he felt like he didn't have a heart. And he said that the event like opened him up and opened up his heart. And uh, like he, it was really going to change the trajectory of his entire life. Um, so that was just this event in downtown Vegas with these people. And it was you know, this experiment of could this thing work that from the Sharpie markers and notebook, could this quote unquote concept of combining my understanding of engagement and education with events and marketing, um, could it work? And it did work. And from there, from them all sharing how uh, monumental and impactful it was, 
it exploded. And from these 30 people, like 250 people were like, how do we come to these events? And there wasn't really a plan for that. So I had to sit down Tony and, and say like, listen, I need proper funding. I'd like, I need to create a business plan. I need to have a team. You know, we need to be doing these monthly, which ended up being twice a month because there were so many people that wanted to come. We shortened them to three days because they were seven days. So then we shortened them to three, like normal people. Um, and for two and a half years, we we created these experiences. We did these Catalyst Weeks and these Creative Weeks for downtown Vegas and brought 2,000 attendees and 250 free talks to the public. And that was really what started the company. That was and that's when, how Catalyst Creative came about. Correct. Because more and more people would attend these experiences and they would say, you know, a brand would say, this feels different. How do you do an event for this for us like this? This feels different. How do you do a branding campaign for us? You know, how can you do a social media campaign? And, and it was me using what I did in education, what I did in hospitality, that thesis I was talking about as my secret sauce. I knew something that not a lot of other people knew, um, which was how to unlock these parts of people and connect them from that place versus connecting from a place of what you do, but versus who you are. And that's how people were connecting at these events is they were coming from this place of kind of this deep rooted notion of, of what makes them them. And that's why they were leaving their people met their husbands, their business partners got funding. I mean, it, the stories we have, the testimonies we have are unbelievable. And I didn't even know years later, I'd run into people like I ran to a woman from Burning Man. She's like, oh, now I got seven kids. She's like, I met my husband through Catalyst Week. I'm like, what? Yeah. She's like, yeah, we're totally married. We have children now. I'm like, okay. Yeah. People left their jobs because of it. Like it just transformed the way people thought about connection with themselves and others. And that was the catalyst for so many people's lives. And that was the catalyst for the company. It really kind of snowballed into being a, you know, a company that services brands and individuals. And So now you're seeing thousands of people and listening to them, hearing who they are at Essence. Mm -hmm. And since you're drilling down so deep, you can quickly connect them where they might plug in in the future. Exactly. Which is exactly what you did with me. Exactly. Yes. You, you looked at me and said, okay, that's great what you think you are, mm. but here's what you really are. And here's the socket that you can plug into because that's what the, that's the juice the world needs right now. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, you're the best at this. That you well, are. I mean, that's what you did. And it made me realize, okay, I can ask questions. I can tell stories. This next clip was a huge lesson for me. It's one of the biggest areas I'm going to work on in the next year. And it comes from Shirzad Shamin. Shirzad is the chairman of CTI, largest coach training organization in the world. It's trained coaches and managers in most of the Fortune 500 companies as well as faculty at Stanford and Yale Business Schools. Shurzad taught me all about my inner saboteurs, about how our weaknesses often hide within our biggest strengths. His book, Positive Intelligence, spells it all out, and also how you can defeat your inner Darth Vader's and lift up your inner Yoda. Here, Shurzad talks about the moment his teachings became apparent to him. The first time that I actually discovered something was happening with me, which, which was in the Darth Vader category, is I was at Stanford Business School as an MBA student. I was this ambitious kid. I'd, made, I'd been top of my class every year. And so here I am at Stanford Business School. 
And I thought that these mechanisms of uh, judgment, the judge being a, a big saboteur, and I had that character running uh, the show in my head, that inner Darth Vader, but I had no clue that it even existed. So the thing that was one of the first things that changed my life that got me into this line of thinking is I was, um, there was a class at Stanford Business School called Interpersonal Dynamics. We, we were assigned to a group of about 10 people. Week after week, we had to sit in a small circle of 10 uh, under full confidentiality. And the rule was you have to tell the truth about how you're feeling about each other and yourself. And so in that context, you get to be revealed for who you are and how you're really thinking. And so what happened is, as towards the end of the quarter, after many weeks of this, uh, we were sitting in a circle and somebody turned to me in the circle and he, he was very nervous. His voice was shaking. His hand was shaking. He said, Shirzad, it's really hard for me to tell you, but I got to tell you, I often feel harshly judged by you and it really bothers me. So I turned to him and I said, John, thank you so much for giving me this feedback. This is very helpful feedback. In the back of my mind, I was thinking, well, of course you feel judged by me, you idiot. <laughs> You're an idiot. <laughs> You're the biggest loser in this group. Oh, my God. <laughs> how, how else do you expect me to think about you? Oh, no. And we were about to move on. And then somebody else turned to me and, and said, Shirzad, John telling you that gives me the courage to also tell you, I also feel harshly judged by you. Often I, I'm really bothered by that. So I turn to her and I say, uh, Kathy, thank you so much for giving me this feedback. This is very awful feedback. <laughs> in the back of my mind, I was thinking, well, Kathy, have you looked at yourself in the mirror lately? I mean, come on, give me a break. Don't blame your insecurities on me. Go get a life. And then a third and a fourth person. The <laughs> third and a fourth person gave me the same exact uh, feedback. And if you can believe it, I was in such denial of this negative mechanism on my mind that I, I said to my, I kept thanking them, but I, I was thinking, well, it's amazing how these guys are lining up based on the first biggest loser, second biggest loser, third biggest loser, fourth biggest loser in the group, trying to justify their insecurities on me. Then what happened that changed my life is the guy sitting to my immediate left, it was one guy that I admired. And at this point, he got up in disgust and he went and sat across me from the circle. And he said, Shirzad, I am so disgusted by your inability to hear the truth that we are telling you. I can't even sit next to you anymore. I'm that angry at you. And, and he said, I have always felt judged by you too, not negatively, positively. The moment you met me, you put me in a box, put me on a pedestal. You have never really seen me for who I really am. And there was something in that moment of that passionate, you know, truth-telling that all of a sudden I realized, oh my God, they are right. I have this need to instantly judge people, size them up, find out who is shorter than me, who is uglier than me, who is uh, dumber than me. I got to figure out what's wrong with you so I feel better about myself. I'm constantly judging and putting people in boxes. So this judge uh, that was running the show, which is a master Darth Vader, it's actually the key saboteur revealed itself. It's the one saboteur everybody has. And at that point, I realized, wow, this character is running me. And later on, I, I discovered more and more of his personality. And I started calling him the executioner because he's such an ugly character. And so that's when I realized that I cannot trust 
this brain of mine, because here I thought I'm always top of my class on all these degrees, and therefore I can trust everything this mind produces. Then I realized actually this mind uh, is my best friend and absolutely my worst enemy. It creates a lot of lies, and I've got to be very careful who is doing the talking in my head. And uh, so that later on became the genesis of all of the saboteurs and all of the work. You can take a test to find your inner saboteurs by going to positiveintelligence.com. Only takes five minutes. It's a series of quick questions that call for quick answers. I took the test and you can hear the results on my podcast with Shirzad. The results were so dead center of the bullseye, it almost made me laugh at myself. As an interviewer, I tend to be in a position of making people feel comfortable That has set me up as a pleaser, which just doesn't work well in other parts of my life. Just being aware of that as I head into the new year makes me a different person. You'll be glad if you take that test on positiveintelligence.com and read Sherzad's book, Positive Intelligence. It's a New York Times bestseller. And here's a clip from Sabrina Kay. South Korean immigrant who couldn't speak English. When she arrived in the United States, she was of college age, but told that she would need six years of English classes before she'd be ready to take an English 101 course. She never did get a bachelor's degree. Instead, she wound up on the cover of Fortune magazine by creating a software company that brought the Korean design community and pattern makers online and led to the Art Institute of Hollywood. She would ultimately sell it in a nine-figure deal. But listen to what happens after she makes that deal and never has to work for the rest of her life. You didn't I have went that. back I, I to them. school out of fear that fear. Out of, I would never be good enough to get another job. Oh, my God. I can't believe this. It is absolute truth. You were and scared. I was so scared. You just that made I a nine-figure deal, and you yeah. were scared that you weren't good enough. I, w- I felt like an imposter. Oh, my God. <laughs> Why? I think we are the stories that we tell ourselves And I grew up in Korea where I was not praised, but I was expected to be number one all the time. And when I get A plus, I'm loved more. So the performance love was was really embedded in my brain, which I didn't know until recently. So I went back to school out of fear that I want to meet everyone's expectations because now people think I'm really smart, but I don't even have an undergrad. I didn't even have, you know, a college degree. I wanted to go back and learn when people were talking about financials and EBITDA. I didn't know how to calculate these things. (laughs) So I, I went back to... You made nine figures before you knew what EBITDA was. Yeah. (laughs) Sabrina reminds me to keep on learning. There was a moment at the end of 2019 that really caught me off guard, made me proud of myself. 
I was setting up equipment for a podcast with Alex Benayan in Los Angeles while bringing in another guest, Amanda Sanchez, from Fresno, California. The podcast was about one of my favorite moments of the year. Here's the thing. Alex has known me since the days when I didn't know how to tweet and was a complete technophobe. He was in disbelief watching me set up all that technology. The shock that registered on his face made me aware of how far I've come, and I've got to commit myself to getting more and more educated in technology in 2020, because that's only going to bring me more clarity. Final lesson seems so obvious, and yet I was just in a deep conversation with a friend about it the other day. We often get placed in situations where there are tremendous demands on our time, and then someone we love gets sick. This happened to me last year when my pal Larry King had heart problems that led to many other medical dilemmas and almost cost him his life. I was traveling a lot at the time, but I did make it to see him whenever I could. This clip is a reminder how important it is to the person who's in a difficult spot for you to simply be there as much as you can. Larry believes that part of the reason we were all able to see him celebrate his 86th birthday is the people who were around him at his most difficult moments. So many of us who watched over the last six months wondered if we were going to see this night. And it was just amazing to me to see you sitting there, laughing, enjoying the music. Truth. Did I nearly buy it? Did I nearly buy the big one? Yeah, you nearly did. How bad was it? Pretty, pretty bad. <laughs> pretty, pretty bad. There was one time where I came to visit you in the hospital and you were sleeping. But I just wondered... Is this the last time I'm going to see you? I know people tell me the doctors gave up on me, some doctors. One doctor said he thought he'd never see me in the morning. See, I was out during all of this. You you have no memory. I have no memory of anything. I just remember, I don't remember where I was. I just remember waking up in intensive care and having a chance to tell me you know, how sick I was and understand they put those two bumpers on my heart and I had a septus infection. It's serious stuff. There were times where you actually thought you were in Florida. Really? Yeah. Thought you were in Florida when you were in the ICU. The ICU confuses everybody, though. Yeah, That's pretty common. ICU is where you go to get sick. <laughs> <laughs> no windows. You're kind of locked in. And it is hard to sleep because somebody is poking you or prodding Tell you. Tell what I'm happy to know. I'm happy to know of all the people who cared and came by. So there you are. Some lessons and questions, dealing with obstacles, rethinking our work environment, rethinking the way we describe ourselves, dealing with our inner saboteurs, making sure we're continually learning, and making sure we leave behind no regrets. So where's the pattern? Well, it took me a while to realize it, but nearly all of the lessons I'd chosen had come from writers or people who had written books. 
Now I'm booked to continue speaking around the world throughout 2020 and also helping businesses tell their stories. But hey, if Simon Sinek can write a book on planes, why can't I? I'm resolving to become more efficient and bring writing back into my daily life. We'll see where it takes me. I would encourage you to write even if you're not a writer. Simply journaling the lessons you took from this last year can help you see yourself more clearly. I'm wishing you a great year filled with health, happiness, and prosperity. And if you want to make the coming year even better, please check out the website of my sponsor, Sportique. That can put you in the softest hoodies, comfy tees, and sweatpants imaginable. And you can get them at a 20% discount by using the offer code CAL. And if your business is throwing an event, think about Sportique products as a form of comfort and bonding. I'm so grateful to have Sportique as a sponsor as we roll into the new year. Because I know my Sportique threads are going to let me roam in comfort. And that about wraps it up this week. I want to thank Tim Ferriss for nudging me to start this podcast. It's led to so many epiphanies and friendships. You've changed so many lives, Tim. Thanks for helping to transform mine. Thanks to Karen Winter for getting her first episode up on the server while Hassan was vacationing out of the country. Thanks to Philip Lanos for always being there whenever you need him. And thanks, as always, to Kevin, the manager. Let's make this the best year yet. Cheers. Cheers.